Hi, my name is Liz, and the Old Testament reading is found in 1 Kings 12, 1-11. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. And they sent and called him, And Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. He said to them, Go away for three days, and then come again to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men, who had stood before Solomon his father while he was yet alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, What do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, Lighten the yoke that your father put on us. And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus shall you speak to the people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs, and now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Courtney, and the New Testament reading is found in 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 11. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit and to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Brian. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading, which is found in Luke 2, 41 through 47 and verse 52. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast had ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. 
And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to our Lord Christ. Remain standing as we pray. Holy Spirit, we welcome you into this place. And we ask that you would open our eyes, that we would see Jesus today. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would open our ears, that we would hear the very voice of God, the word of God to us, to our situations, our circumstances. And Holy Spirit, we ask you to open our hearts, that you'd make them soft and ready to receive the word of God, so that we might be formed into the image of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, and everyone said, amen. You may be seated. Where do you go when you need help? Where do you go when you need advice? Where do you go when you need wisdom? What do you do when you can't figure it out on your own? We're in a series called Tuned In, which is all about learning to listen to God. And so week one, we talked about God being the speaking God, the God who who spoke the world into being, and the God who called after Adam and Eve, even when they turned their back on him and sinned against him. In fact, the God who keeps calling after us, the God who called Abraham out of his father's house, the God who called Moses out of Egypt, the God who called Israel out of Egypt, the God who, after Israel was in the promised land and went chasing after other gods, the God who called after Israel through the prophets. Week one, we set this up as this foundational picture of a God who comes after us, who comes speaking, calling after us. And the epitome of this is Jesus, Jesus, the full and final revelation of God, Jesus, the very word of God become flesh. Jesus we said in week one, is what God has to say. Jesus is the full and final word on everything we wonder about. But then we kind of brought the picture in just a little bit more, and in the second week we said, okay, well, well, what about the Bible? What do we do with that? And we talked about what it means to listen to God through Scripture. And we don't want to create a false dichotomy between Jesus and the Bible. Yes, Jesus is the Word of God, and the Bible is the Word of God in so much that it testifies to Jesus But they're meant to work together. That's why Jesus said, you search the scriptures looking for life, but you miss out that the scriptures testify of me. They talk about me. And so we said, look, if if you're reading the Bible in a way that makes you miss Jesus, you're not reading the Bible right. And we talked in week two about what it means to find Jesus in the story and then find ourselves in the story and then to let the spirit make the scripture come alive inside of us. And then last week we said, what does it mean to listen to God for guidance? So many of us in our daily life, what we really want is for God to lead us. And we said last week, listen, the macro will of God matters more than the micro decisions. That really what God is concerned about is that he's forming us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. But that is not to say that we shouldn't seek him about our decisions. In fact, someone sent me a message last week and said, Glenn, are you trying to say that we shouldn't ask God's opinion about stuff? No, not at all. What I am trying to say is that when you seek God for guidance, as we should, we should always turn to him and seek his face and ask him to lead us. But when we do that, we shouldn't think that we're going to get the kind of clarity that eliminates the need for faith. We shouldn't think that we're going to get this guaranteed set of answers that's going to make it so that we never need to keep trusting in him. In fact, the goal of seeking God 
is not to get fixed answers, but to enjoy the company of God's presence with you through life. That the whole point is there's going to be paths where there'll be joy and there'll be trouble in all likelihood, but we seek God so that we get God (laughs) with us, enjoying the company of God with us. Well, this morning we come to this other question of what do we do when we actually need answers, when we actually need wisdom, when we need some help? Is the Christian life designed to be solo? If we ended the series last week, you'd say, well, that's great. I got the Holy Spirit. I know how to listen to God for guidance. I've got the scriptures. I got my Bible. I got my Jesus. That's all I need. I was at something recently where the worship leader said to the room, they said, look, we really, the whole point of this worship service is just really for you to have a heart-to-heart connection with Jesus, and we're just here to be the soundtrack for your heart-to-heart connection. Now, that's, on the one hand, really beautiful, and on the other hand, a little bit troubling, Because if that's true, then why did we all come? If the only point was for us to gather in the room and have solo heart-to-heart connections, then we didn't need to all be here. You could be in your own home or on the trail somewhere with your iPod, headphones in, or headphones in, no more iPods, right? Your phones and your headphones. You You didn't need to gather. Why gather? I mean, sometimes we think that the spiritual life is a bit like going to the gym. You go to the gym, everybody's got their own machines, you see people, you say hi, but I'm just here for my workout. And you do the treadmill or you do the stairs climber or whatever it is, and then you smile again, wipe down your equipment if you're courteous like that, and then you leave. Please wipe down your equipment. And so we think, well, maybe church is like that. I come, I have a personal heart-to-heart connection with God, I have a private Jesus moment, and then I wave, smile, and go back. Is that it? How do we listen to God through one another? The first thing it's going to take is the risk of vulnerability. It's going to take the risk of vulnerability because to involve others at all means that you got to open up. you got to share. And here's the trick, the, 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 the tension in all of this, is for many of us, I don't know if you relate to this or, or not, but for many of us, the lie that we have internalized is that we're supposed to have it all figured out. And so we say, well, listen, you're 30 years old. You should know this by now. You're a grown man. You're a grown woman. You've got a job. You're supposed to know how to balance your budget. You're supposed to know how to make decisions. You're supposed to know how to hear God's voice. You're supposed to know. And so there's this, on the one hand, this immense pressure that we're internalizing that says, I'm supposed to know. And on the other hand, this nagging voice in our head that says, but you don't actually know. You're an imposter. (laughs) You don't belong in this role. You don't, you, you don't know what you're doing. And you're like, shh. I was at a setting a few years ago, I think my first time at an academic conference, and I was like, oh my goodness, I have no idea what I'm doing here. I don't really know how this works. I'm used to like telling jokes and warming up the crowd, and everyone's up there reading from a piece of paper, you know? I'm like, I don't, I don't know how to do this. I don't, I don't know if I have anything to say. And I'm, I'm confiding in the person next to me, and they go, Glenn, nobody knows what they're doing. <laughs> it's like, okay, all right, good, that's good. So long as we all know that we don't know what we're doing, you know? And so there's this sense of, I'm supposed to know, but I don't really know, and I kind of feel like I'm faking my way through. How do we do this? And vulnerability is the risk of saying, actually, I'm struggling. 
Actually, I'm supposed to, I know I'm supposed to have this marriage thing figured out, but, but I don't. We've, we've come to a, a place where we don't, we're stuck. Uh, oh, this parenting thing, I know we're just supposed to know how to be good moms or good dads, and honestly, I'm a little, stu- I don't know what to do. And the risk of vulnerability is the risk of letting someone else in. Now, in our day, vulnerability is, is getting a bit more attention, which is a good thing. But there's still barriers to it, right? There are still certain people that we don't really want to hear them be vulnerable. For example, leaders. It's well and good for your, fel- your peers to be vulnerable with you, but you don't really want your leaders to be vulnerable because what if your pastor says, yeah, I'm not quite sure what that text actually means. You're like, oh, brother, how'd you get to be the pastor? You know? <laughs> so, you know, this thing that Jesus is asking, it's a bit puzzling and it's a very hard saying. You're like, what? You don't know how this is supposed to look? And so there's vulnerability, there's places where vulnerability is still not acceptable. Men sometimes say, it's well and good for women to talk about vulnerability, but when I tell my wife that I don't really know how to do this or this or this, she loses respect for me. Men sometimes say this. And sometimes, sometimes people share with me, they say, well, well you know, as a woman, when I feel overwhelmed, I cry, people are compassionate. As a man, I, I get upset when I'm overwhelmed, and people scold me for being angry. And so well, how is there room to be vulnerable? Can I ever say that I'm over the limit? Can I ever own up to that? So the question is, what are these barriers and how do we overcome them? But maybe a greater question is to what end? What's the point of this? There's a way of making an idol out of vulnerability, of making vulnerability an end in itself and to say, oh, it's just so great. Let's just share everything with everybody. Let's just be all broken together. At New Life Downtown, we have this series of words that we say. We say blessed, broken, and given. And it comes from the way Jesus took the bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it. And it happens particularly in Luke's gospel three times. It happens when uh, Jesus is feeding the 5,000. It happens at Passover, most significantly. And then it happens with the disciples in the road to Emmaus. And this is the, people call this the Eucharistic action. It's Jesus taking the, the ordinary thing, blessing it, breaking it, and then giving it. And we love those words here at New Life Downtown because it's a way of understanding what it means to be the people of God. And so we say, look, on Sundays, we gather around the Lord's table, and we remember how blessed we are in Christ. That's why, if you've noticed, our whole service every week at New Life Downtown reenacts the gospel. It reenacts the gospel story. We come in, we worship, we hear the word of God, we confess our sin and our brokenness, and we receive afresh the grace of God. Blessed, the blessedness that we rehearse as we gather around the Lord's table. But then... Then there is this word broken, and we live out our brokenness as we gather around one another's tables. People sometimes say, well, what do you have to offer here at New Life Downtown? Do you have this program, this program? Now, you know what we do? We basically do Sundays and we do meal groups, because what we want is for you to gather around the Lord's table, remember the gospel and how blessed we are in Christ, and then gather around one another's tables and let your lives be broken together. And when we say this word broken, we don't mean miserable. (laughs) Sometimes people say the word broken, oh, I'm just so broken, I'm just miserable. We say broken and we're thinking vulnerable because bread that is to be shared must be broken. 
Bread that is to be shared must be broken. If we are going to share this bread, it has to be broken. If God is going to take our lives and share it with one another and feed one another with our own lives, then we have to be willing to let him break us and share us. What is on the other side of your vulnerability? Who else is waiting there? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian during World War II, wrote a thin little book called Life Together, and Bonhoeffer formed kind of an alternate community even as the state church was struggling, shall we say. And there's some parts of Life Together that are a little weird. Bonhoeffer does this thing about how we're not supposed to sing. He doesn't think we should sing in three-part harmony because it's not unity, that unity means we should sing in unison. It's a bit funky, you know. But the first two chapters of Life Together are where the gold is, if you ever read the book. And this is one of the things he says. But God has put this word into the mouth of men, and in his community was all men, but you can substitute here men and women, in order that it may be communicated to other men and women. When one person is struck by the word, the word of Christ, the gospel, he speaks it to others. God has willed that we should seek and find his living word in the witness of a brother or a sister, in the mouth of man or woman. Therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. That's why we gather, so that someone can speak God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself or by herself, she cannot help herself without belying the truth. She needs her sister or her brother as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. Get this. Bonhoeffer's not just saying, you know, some sort of happy, you know, lean on me when you're not strong, you know. No, he's saying, no, this is because of Jesus. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. Leave that up for a second. The Christ in his own heart is weaker. What are you saying, Brother Dietrich? He's saying, look, it's true that Christ dwells in us, but sometimes we forget. Sometimes we get discouraged. Sometimes we're uncertain. And sometimes in a brother or a sister, Christ is there in their word in a strong way, and they speak this word to us, and it brings us life. You know, one of the things we're so guilty of, it's so easy for us as Americans, and maybe in particular as Coloradoans, We are the rugged individualists. So we love the verse where Paul says, Christ in you is the hope of glory. And we say, that's right, I've got Christ in me. And we love when John wrote uh, to, to his churches and he says, the anointing resides in you. You don't need anyone to teach you. And they say, and don't you forget it, pastor. I don't really need you. <laughs> I don't need anybody. I am, I've got the spirit. I got my Bible. I don't need you. I don't need the church. But we forget, Paul also wrote to the Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly that you may speak to one another. You see, the thing is, is not just that I need the word of Christ in you, but that you need the word of Christ in me. And on and on it goes, back and forth it goes. So vulnerability is not simply because, well, I need something. Vulnerability is because someone else might need something. And when you shared it, it brought life to me. So who's waiting on the other end of your vulnerability? 
We still hear uh, feedback from people a couple years ago on Mother's Day. Holly, my wife, shared about the difficulty that, that she experienced with anxiety and postpartum stuff after having our fourth. And she shared about that one year during Mother's Day. And, and we still hear, have people come up and say, I remember when, when she shared that. Or I remember, Holly, when you shared, shared that. Why? Because someone on the other end is waiting for the word of life that comes through your vulnerability. So don't hold back. Not just, you, you might say, well, I'm, I'm not needy right now. I'm fine. That's great. But someone else might need you to share with them how you made it through a rough time. So the risk of vulnerability is not just for you, it's for them. But the trick with vulnerability, of course, is whom we are vulnerable with. We can't go posting on Facebook our deepest sins, you know. Just want everybody to know I really struggle with, you know. And isn't it odd that in our day, <laughs> it's almost easier to blab on social media than it is to be honest to the person in front of us. We can gripe and moan, oh, well, I tell you about my day, you know, just being real. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I'm not sure. That's the to what end vulnerability, right? To what purpose? If vulnerability is an end in itself, then blab away on Facebook. <laughs> But if the goal is that you would strengthen one another, then actually the personal settings are more powerful when you sit one-on-one or with a small group and share. So whom do we ask? We don't just need the risk of vulnerability. We need the right community, the right community. Whom, who, to whom shall we turn? Our Old Testament reading this morning came from this strange story in 1 Kings, and I must commend you. They, you're so good. You're listening to this bizarre text where he says, you tell them that my pinky is thicker than my father's thighs and I'll whip you with scorpions. And you're like, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, it's like, does it ever, it doesn't strike you just a little odd, you know, like this is, so you're, you're commendable. The story the story is of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, has become king. And they've been through a long, long series of years of building projects. And if we're going to be honest, um, forced labor. Forced labor not just for Israel but for other peoples and foreigners that they brought in. And forced labor from migrants. Wow, the Bible's relevant. And so these people are tired after this. And they're exhausted. And they're saying to Rehoboam, Solomon's son, hey, would you take it easy? Give us a break. And he says, okay, let me see. And so 1 Kings verse 6, then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon his father while he was yet alive. Now think about this. The Bible gives us this picture of Solomon as the wisest man who ever lived, right? The wisest man who ever lived had counselors in his life. The wisest man who ever lived had older men than him who, who helped advise him. If the wisest man who ever lived had people that he was seeking counsel with, you can too. And I can too. But what's remarkable is Rehoboam goes to these guys and he says, how do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. That, by the way, is wonderful leadership advice, especially if you're the, the guy following the guy or the girl following the girl. You're the second person to take the reins or whatever, and you're saying, what should I do? Be a servant to them. 
Be kind to them. It's wonderful advice. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. I mean, can you imagine this? Rehoboam's like going to the wisest old guys around. He's like, you, you advise my father. What should you say? And they say, well, young Rehoboam, this is what you need to do. And he says, yeah, I don't know. And then he says, where are my peeps at? And he goes and finds his like posse. He says, what do, you, what do you guys think? And they're like, man... You need to say to them that your pinky's like thicker than your father's waist. And, and he's like, dude, I can run with that. And so he does it. And as a result, the kingdom splits in two. Now, God had prophesied that Israel was going to split in two. But could it be that it need not have happened under Rehoboam? But that because he, set, he sought the counsel, took the counsel of the wrong community, that his legacy is now one of the destruction of the nation, <laughs> the division of a people. So the question for us is, whose counsel are you seeking? Who are the people that, you, that really have your ear? Who are the people that you really turn to? Maybe the obvious one is to say, well, let's, uh, we need to go to people who are older than us, who, who, are, who are past the season. That's true. That's a really good thing to do. A few weeks ago, I had lunch with one of the older men in our congregation. We've known, my wife and I have known he and his wife for several years now. And we sat down to lunch and, and I was asking him, talk to me about the season of life that I'm in. Talk to me about with my kids, 10 and under. Talk to me about what you remember about that season and what, what I don't see sometimes because of the chaos of this moment. And he starts you know, sharing some things with me, very encouraging. And I'm, I'm remembering it. I'm, I'm writing it down. But do you know, it's worth saying that it's important to differentiate the types of voices in our life. In some situations, we need professional counselors. We need therapists. We need uh, psychologists and psychiatrists to help. It could be to be one of the voices. We also need pa pastors. We also do need friends and peers and and then we just need older kind of sage voices in our lives. And it's important to differentiate because, because sometimes you might be looking for all of it in one. And it may not be that that, in fact, it's probably pretty rare that you can find it all in one. And so you need a plurality of voices. One, one person called this the constellation model of, of direction said, instead of looking for one north star, it's good to have a north star, but, but, but have a whole constellation which you know, is how the ancients used to navigate. Yes, the North Star mattered, but man, the constellations were part of the guide. I mean, I know this from my seafaring days, you know. Just why are you laughing? Um, so a constellation of voices. If the only voices in your life are people um, that think the same as you or are in the same season of life as you, that's, that's not the constellation you want. You need to spread it out a bit. In fact, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. You've got to go find some other rooms to be in. Find some other. Now, I, I understand. I was talking with a friend a few weeks ago. He said, Glenn, this is so challenging where I'm at. I've tried. I've joined men's groups. I've joined, and I just can't find people. They're all, it just doesn't seem to click. And it's, po it's possible that maybe one of those voices or one of those lights comes through the form of a book or a series of of, of podcasts or videos and things like that. I remember several years ago, I was feeling this desire to grow um, in my understanding of a particular uh, theological theme, and I picked up this book, and, and I thought, 
this is, is really going to challenge me, but I didn't want to do it alone. And so I gathered up a few other friends and I said, look, guys, we're kind of all dim lights. Uh, maybe we need this one bright light to guide us. Could we, could we gather together and, and work through this book together? And so somehow, vicariously, someone else ends up being one of the bright lights in your constellation. Does that make sense? That you can, you can do things like that. You can, you, you, can, you can fill this out in different ways. But here's a tip, a couple tips. Number one, if you're approaching someone and you're a younger person, don't ask them right off the bat to be your mentor. Will you be my mentor? You're nervously laughing because you're not sure why that's the case. The reason for that is, A, it's a bit formal, and it need not be so formal. And secondly, you don't know that you actually want them to be your mentor. And it could get awkward when you break up with the mentors. A lot messier than boyfriend, girlfriend. So, <laughs> so, so it's, it's simpler if you say, can I buy you a cup of coffee sometime? Can I buy you lunch sometime? Can I go out with you? And then pro tip number two, when you do that, have questions ready. Have questions ready. Like when I was meeting with this gentleman, I had a question in my mind. I was like, I'm going to talk to him about this. And actually, my wife is so good about this because it was that morning, and she goes, oh, you're having lunch with so-and-so. What are you going to ask him? And I was like, oh, uh, hadn't really thought about that. And I'm going to ask him. I know, I know. I'm going to ask him. Da, 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 you know. But it was just this thing of think ahead of time. Look, in 2007, text messaging overtook phone calls as the number one mode of communication between people. All of you that are under a certain age, you've not really known a social world where texting was not your dominant form of communication, whether text via Facebook message or whatever. I'm not dogging on texting, but sometimes the lost art of face-to-face -face communication can make for a very awkward coffee with your future mentor. <laughs> hey, can we meet? Sure. Hi. <laughs> so... Yeah. So just don't do that. Don't be that guy. Have a list of questions. Ask. Listen. It's amazing. The gospel story is young Jesus going to the temple. Do you know, there's only one, if I'm not mistaken, only one story that we're given of Jesus between his birth and his ministry. And it comes in Luke's gospel. And Luke has reasons for giving us this story. But isn't it remarkable that Jesus, the very wisdom of God, was somewhere seeking wisdom. This is the mystery of the humanity of, and the divinity of Christ. How, how is it that Jesus, fully human, still needed to grow in wisdom? I, I, don't, I don't know. It's a mystery. But yet we see this 12-year-old Jesus going to the very center of Jewish wisdom, the temple, and sitting with the teachers. And it says they found him listening to them and asking questions. They were amazed at his answers, and he grew in wisdom. It's a beautiful thing. Jesus himself, when he walked in the earth, grew in wisdom by learning the art of asking questions and listening. That's wonderful. Now, maybe some of you on the other side of this, you're the person that you know people have asked you out to get your wisdom, and you're thinking, I don't have any wisdom. And I've heard this, too, from people in their 50s and 60s. They're like, Glenn, this is great. We've got all these young people in the church, but they keep asking me for wisdom, and I don't have any. Like, I don't, I've made a lot of mistakes in my life. I'm not perfect. That's exactly why you're the right person. And I want to speak to you that, that are more seasoned in our church and say, we know the scripture says do not despise your youth, but I also want to say do not despise your experience. 
That even through the seasons of your years, the mess of your own mistakes, the good, the bad, the ugly of your life, don't discount God's ability to use that to bring wisdom to someone else. In fact, to take the pressure off of you, really, what you're trying to do is not to say, oh, I, I know how to give them answers. What you're trying to do is to say, I'm going to help them to pay attention to what God is doing in their life. And in fact, that is the key to all of this. You can have the risk of vulnerability and you can have the right community and it still wouldn't be listening to God through one another. You could, have the, you could be so vulnerable and you could have great people, but it's still not the wisdom of God. Why? Because you're missing the third and most critical ingredient of all, the Holy Spirit. We don't just need the risk of vulnerability and the right community. We need the role of the Spirit. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and this whole letter is about what it means to be a community of the Holy Spirit. And the Corinthians have a lot to learn about this because they've got other images of what a good community looks like, and it's been shaped by Greek thought and by Roman thought and all of this stuff. And Paul comes in, and he says, now listen, if you're going to be a community of Jesus, it's got to be a community shaped by the Holy Spirit. The word Sophia, the Greek word for wisdom, sophos and Sophia, are used so many times in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, disproportionately more than any other place in the New Testament. And Paul's trying to say, okay, 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 Corinth, Corinthians, you love wisdom. That's so great. But you can't talk about wisdom until we talk about the Holy Spirit because the Spirit is different. He says to them in 1 Corinthians 12, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit, varieties of service, but the same Lord, varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone to each is given a manifestation of the spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the spirit, the utterance of wisdom and to another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same spirit. Now skip down to verse 11. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Why is Paul going through so much trouble to say it's the same Spirit? It's the same Spirit that is responsible for guiding you is the same Spirit that's responsible for guiding me. And that means when we sit down together, paying attention to the Holy Spirit is job number one. Paying attention to the Holy Spirit is job number one. One of the voices in my life is a spiritual director. And over the last year and a half or so, I've met uh, pretty regularly with a spiritual director. And, and people say, well, what's a spiritual director? It's basically someone who's practiced in the art of helping you pay attention to what the Spirit is doing in your life. And they're committed to that. So sometimes they've used the metaphor like, Glenn, it's basically like you are going on a walk with the Spirit, and I'm kind of trailing behind, eavesdropping, and helping you to catch that. Like, hey, do you, do you see that? The Spirit seems to be doing this. What do you think the Lord is doing here? What do you think? And you're doing that. Now imagine what this could look like if we did this for one another. So we sit down, and someone says, ah, this is what's happening in my life, blah, 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 blah. And your first response is not, Oh, well, you know what you need to do? And spit out all your standard canned answers and advice. What if your first response was to really be good at listening, be attentive to their life, and then to say, man, let's, let's pay attention to what the Holy Spirit's doing here. I, I, I don't know, but let's pray together. 
You know, it's almost cliched sometimes in church circles where people joke about it. They're like, oh, yeah, sure. Let's pray about it. Like, that's short, that's short for I'm done talking to you, right? <laughs> but praying for one another, praying with each other, is one of the most profound things we can do. Because in prayer, we are joining each other and saying, let's together pay attention to what the Spirit is doing. And so sometimes someone will come in and they'll, they'll share, Glenn, this, this is happening and this is happening and this is happening. And I'll just get the sense in my heart, stop, stop. Right now they don't need an answer. Right now they need you to help them pay attention to the Holy Spirit. So we'll stop and say, man, let's, let's just pray right now. We just stop. And we begin to pray. And in that moment, both of us are trying to pay attention to the Holy Spirit. And then we pray. That is one of the most powerful gifts we can give one another. And do you know, <laughs> you might make mistakes in this, and it's okay. Paul talks about the Spirit giving a, 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 an insight of knowledge or an insight of wisdom. Maybe you'll take the risk and you'll say, I, I just, just feel like the Lord is maybe just saying that he wants to be a covering over your home during this time, and you, and you pray that. And maybe it's like right on, but maybe it's not. But, but it's okay for it to be, uh, for, for you to make mistakes with it. That's why I don't recommend running out the gate and saying, Thus saith the Lord, quit your job and start a new business. And they're like, oh, are you sure? You know? It's great to be like, you know, let's, let's wrestle through this together. Let's pay attention to the Holy Spirit together. Agabus was a prophet in the book of Acts, and Agabus was well known for some of his prophecies that were really critical to the church. And there's this moment where Paul, the apostle, comes, and Agabus comes very dramatically, takes off his belt and ties Paul up, and he says, Paul, and he says, the, the Lord says, whoever goes to Jerusalem, the owner of this belt will be bound, and you know, it's this poetic way of saying, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to get run into persecution. And Paul says, yeah, I know, and I'm ready to suffer that and more. In other words, Agabus, you're right about what you're seeing, but you're wrong about your conclusion. Sometimes we miss it. It's okay. That doesn't mean we stop giving each other the gift of our prayerful presence, the gift of prayerful presence to one another. But, you know, if we're going to have this practice of prayerful presence with one another, paying attention to the Holy Spirit, the most important question of all is how do we know if this is the wisdom of God or just the wisdom of man? Paul starts his whole letter to the Corinthians with this. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, through its own wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preached Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, Christ, the wisdom of God. 
For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. How do you know when what you're getting from one another is actually the wisdom of God? It reveals Jesus, and it looks like the cross. It reveals Jesus, and it looks like the cross. So many times, even as Christians, we're so guilty of just spitting out in the name of wisdom, spitting out answers that have to do with our own comfort and accumulation and consumerism that are more, have more to do with our culture than they have to do with the cross. And that's not the wisdom that we need from one another. How many young people, how many people going on the mission field have been told by others, well, I, I, I don't know about that. Where's the wisdom in that? And wisdom is thrown out as a mask for, I'm afraid that you're not going to have enough money. Instead of saying, can I pray with you to discern if the wisdom of the cross is at work in this decision? Because the wisdom of the cross will often challenge the wisdom of the American dream. And so we're going to make decisions that may not make sense. What do you mean you're doing this with your children? What do you mean you made this decision? What do you mean you made that decision? Oh, brother, is that wise? And you in that moment may have to be like Paul to Agabus and say, I know what you're saying. Something about what you're saying is right, but something's not quite right. It doesn't sound like the cross. And the trick of wrestling through this is being willing to put everything through the lens of the cross. Does it reveal Jesus? Does it look like the cross? And if the answer is yes, then you are experiencing the beauty and the blessing of listening to God through one another. Would you bow your heads this morning?